How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Yeah. Good. You seem wide-eyed and excited. <laughs> All right, Eric, we can open up to Judges 17. We're going to be uh, doing two chapters tonight. No. No. Maybe being done. All right. Judges 17, another good starting spot. So you have to flip there, uh, maybe later. Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to be stopping off there, reading a passage. Once you get there, we'll go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Is everyone there? Everyone good? Already? Let's go. Let's gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us together. Um... Just ask, Lord, your blessing upon it. Pray, Lord, that you move through it. You know, your word is never going to return void. So we trust that you're just going to do something special here tonight. You're going to speak to our hearts. You have something for everyone in this place. Um, and so, Lord, we just invite you in to move in our midst. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace to meet us where we're at. And Lord, to grow us and develop us and draw us closer to you as a child of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so only a few more studies in the book of Judges. Hopefully, we'll be able to get through both chapters tonight. That is intense. Man, that is a tenacious ghetto bird. Um, but we're going to start in Judges 17. Um, we're done. Wait, was that inappropriate? That doesn't seem... Okay, uh, that's, anyways, we got to know those that uh, when Boo was living out in Echo Park, they were like our, they were our seagulls, um, but we finished the, the actual judges, and uh, now we're going to be considering the times of the judges, right? The first part is all about these leaders, and uh, so many of them, they're extraordinary, but we can only really uh, completely understand them when we understand the time that created them, because so many of them are just a product of their time. You know, you read about these judges, and for so many of them, you just come to this conclusion that they're, they're surprisingly unspiritual, right? You know, you're reading about these guys, and they're just living these incredibly carnal lives, and these are the leaders of the people of God. But this is uh, the, the time of the people of God, and it's very clear in verse 6. In verse 6, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the, the, the time of all these judges, it was a time where everyone would just look around right and left and they would just say, hey, you know, there's no one saying what's right and what's wrong, so let's just do whatever we think is best. And Micah is picked as the first example of this. Uh, you know, Micah isn't one of the judges, so he's not picked because he's extraordinary. He's picked uh, to begin the times of the judges because he's very unextraordinary. He's picked to be sort of a picture of what was ordinary uh, for this time. So it's not surprising uh, that we learn about him in verse 1 that he was a thief. So in verse 1 we'll begin. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me, I took it. And his mother said, the Lord bless you my son. And when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image. So she gave it to the Lord to make an idol. 
and a cast idol, and I give it back to you. And so he returned the silver to his mother. She took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, who made them into an image and an idol, and they were put in Micah's house. So uh, this passage tells us a lot about uh, Israel during this time, doesn't it? All right, and here's this guy, uh, Micah. He steals from his mom, right? And he's fine with that. It's okay to steal from your parents, but he's upset when his mom puts a curse on him. You see, and that's, that's not good. That's the bad thing. So he takes all the money that he stole for his mom. He was cool with stealing it, gives it back to his mom, says, just, you know, uh, just don't curse me. And so she lifts the curse. She gives him a blessing. She says, hey, you know, praise God. You gave back all the money that you robbed from me. Let's celebrate with false gods. And so they, they go and they get some false gods made. And now, if we're taking this as a, as a picture of the time of the judges, uh, then maybe it's an important question to ask, uh, how difficult was it to acquire idols during the time of the judges? It doesn't seem like a, a very laborious task that this woman went through to get these idols made. It seems like she just went to the corner market and, and you know, gave the guy some money. He came up with some idols, and she was able to acquire them very quickly. Idolatry was rampant in Israel during this time, and that's why we see it in the leaders of Israel during this time. Each one of them struggled with idolatry because they lived in a nation that was buried under the weight of idolatry. So now these these idols are uh, are made, and they're set up in Micah's house, and uh, a reward for stealing from his mom. Here you go. Have some idols. Take some sets them up, and, and you might well conclude, if you read only this portion of scripture, that Micah was a pagan. Uh, Micah's a heathen, worshipping false gods. But we continue reading and discover a complex religious pattern happening in the heart of Micah. Beginning in verse 5, now this man Micah had a shrine, and he had an ephod, and some idols, and installed one of his sons as priest. In those days, Israel had no king, everyone did, as he saw fit. So now here he is, a man thoroughly confused, right? He has his son, and he says, son, I'm going to make you my priest. And he has an ephod made for this son, and well, the Bible says that these ephods are supposed to be gold. He made it out of silver, but maybe that's just splitting hairs. He has an ephod, a priestly garment made for his son. He gives it to him, and now he has these elements of Israelite worship, these elements that are supposed to be given to worship the true and living God. He combines them with uh, paganism and just makes this a vile mixture of the truth of the Bible with the traditions of men uh, that surround him. And, and the conclusion of it all in verse 6 is very clear. He did it simply because it seemed right to him to do this. And it might be a worthwhile question to ask at this time, and, and I, I thought it was as I uh, sat and stared at my computer screen. Have any of you ever heard this passage preached from the pulpit before? No? I, I've heard it. I've heard it once, and, and it was a very unpleasant experience. And, and maybe you, the the few of you that raise your hands, have had a similar experience with the preaching of this passage in particular. Uh, and, and because it was such an uncomfortable experience, I, I decided to bring it up in the context of a more level-headed group of Christians. Uh, maybe a group of Christians that can uh, sift through. The, the, the just, you know, murk and mire and, and develop some kind of uh, more clear version of the reality of what this text is saying to us, because I believe that it is saying something uh, very clearly. Now, the context that I've heard it preached uh, is the context of Christian holidays. 
And, and I don't know if that's the same for you. Maybe not. Uh, but but I, I was a Baptist. So uh, it was it was common. We come around Christmas. The pastor stands up there and he says, you're all, the lot of you, a bunch of filthy, rotten pagans. And, and then we feel all very good about ourselves. And he explains to us why. And, and because there are many Christians and many preachers that believe that the Christian holidays our Christian holidays are nothing more than a mixture of Christianity with paganism. And I'm just going to focus in on one holiday in particular, and it's going to be Christmas, right? I could talk about others for uh, for funsies later after we're done. Uh, but the, the one here uh, in particular is just going to be Christmas. And now most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, with the, the idea that Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th, <clears throat> right? I mean, that's... Uh, that's uh, that, that's more common knowledge, right? Uh, the, the reality of it is we have no idea when Jesus was born, but most likely it was during September. So you have to ask yourself the question, why was December 25th chosen? And it was chosen uh, because the date coincides with numerous pagan holidays that celebrated the winter solstice. And if you're sifting through all this, it's going to be a, a confusing matter to, to get through because it's a mixture of... of uh, you, you got the Romans, you got the Babylonians, and you got the ancient Germanic people. They all had similar holidays celebrated during the same exact time, worshipping similar gods. It was uh, celebrated during this time, the winter solstice, actually several days after the solstice, on the 25th of December, because uh, that was the time when the sun started to rise again in the sky. Now, the winter solstice is when the sun is lowest in the sky. I'm taking astronomy, so this is like uh, it's like a test for me. Uh, and so a couple of days after, it's when it's going to start rising again. So when it would start rising again, they would start worshipping the sun as a resurrected lord of the sky. Um, and there were different uh, cultural names for this god, and one of them became known as Nimrod. And you're familiar with Nimrod from Genesis chapter 10. He's uh, He was the evil leader of uh, Babel, right? So you got this Nimrod guy, and a cult formed around the idea of Nimrod that was carried on over historically to be known as, and this is the fun part, the Yule cult. And, and have you ever have you ever wondered where this whole idea of Yule comes from? I always wondered that as a kid. What's this idea of Yule and the Yule log, and and what's this whole thing about? Uh, the, the Yule log was representative of the dead stock of Nimrod. It was this dead chunk of wood uh, that you would preserve through the through the summer, and you would bring it in. You were supposed to burn it on uh, Christmas Eve, the day before Christmas, and and it was representative of the death of Nimrod. So you would throw it into the fire, you would burn it up, recognizing the death, the dead stock cut down, Nimrod. And then the next day, another fun part, you would bring in the Christmas tree, the evergreen tree, and you would erect it in your house, this bright, beautiful, beautiful, vibrant uh, Christmas tree. You'd set it up, and that was to represent the resurrected life of Nimrod, that Nimrod has has come back, and, and it's it's this uh, this mimicking of uh, the life of Christ, this wonderful biblical truth that we all knew, know. Uh, this tree was erected in the house because it was a fertility sign for the people that that were in the Yule cult. So they would they would worship around the Nimrod tree. It was uh, supposed to be a, a sign that was good for 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 baby making, essentially. And, and so, you know, that's, uh, it's interesting. That's the story of the Christmas tree, right? And, and it's, and it's weird. I'm sure you all feel just a wee bit weird 
right, if you were to be honest. Uh, and you would say, well, this is getting a, a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I want to be here anymore. Uh, but it actually gets worse. Um, yeah, would, would you like to guess what the, the colors of the Yule cult were? Oh, come on. Yes, of course. Why wouldn't they be red and green, the Christmas colors that we all have in our culture? And you're like, oh, no. But I still have other questions. There's all kinds of other things in Christmas that just don't make sense to me. And they were. They were these things that just never clicked in my brain, just like the Yule log. And I always wondered, uh, what's the story with mistletoe and, and holly? You know, where, where did these come from? We don't hear about these anywhere in the Bible. They're nowhere in, you know, in any page of scripture related to the birth of Christ. Mistletoe and holly, what's that all about? And I'll save you the very graphic details. Uh, but, but these, but these were a very gnarly part of the fertility signs that were worshipped in the pagan temple during the, the Christmas, December 25th, Easter, or, or winter solstice orgies. Uh, so you have to ask yourself the question, why would Christians ever adopt these pagan practices and sync it together with Christ? And why do you think they did? Peer pressure. <laughs> and that's, that's basically ex exactly what happened. When, Constant, when Constantine came along, uh, the Roman Empire, or, you know, the Roman Emperor, some 300 years after the, the death of Christ, and he uh, made Christianity a legal religion in Rome, these were already the traditions of the pagan people that lived in Rome. You know, they'd been carried over, all these cults from the people that had flooded Rome. So what Constantine did is he went to the pagan priests and said, well, you, you guys, uh, you have to be Christian priests now also. And, and he told the pagan people, well, you can call yourselves Christian people now also. So all they did is they brought in uh, the pagan traditions to line up with what they were recognizing as uh, Christian traditions. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to find any of these things. You're not going to find the Yule log and the Christmas tree in red and green. You're not going to find uh, holly and mistletoe. Uh, it's, it's just not there. And if you were, you know, reading the Bible by itself, you would have never came upon any of these things. And, and, and so my pastor would stand in the pulpit and say, if you, if you celebrate Christmas today, then you're twice the pagan that Micah was. And, and, and pray to God for your soul if you open up a single gift. And we'd gather around the tree and open up our Ninja Turtles and just feel nothing but guilt. You know, and, and it's terrible. It's terrible with that, you know, that glorious Michelangelo toy. You know, and you can't even play with it. And, and, uh, but, but the question is, is what I'm doing the same as what Micah did? Right, and here's where the critical thinking comes in. Because this is something that is taught from pulpits today. And, and this is a passage that is used to validate it. And, and I don't think that it's the same. So Micah did what he did with full knowledge of what he was doing. Right? He got these idols, and he knew what these idols were. He knew what they represented. They were in the culture that surrounded them, and he recognized and worshipped them accordingly. And, and he also brought in the, this, this worship that seemed to be uh, the, the worship of the true and living God. And he just mixed them together, and he was fine with that because, according to verse 6, it just seemed right to him. So he just did it because he wanted to do it. 